Yeah, ever tempted to buck against tradition and do your own thing? Never happens to me. Are you ever tempted to buck against tradition, tradition and do your own thing? Uh, deep in, in us, I suppose, whether we like it or not, there is a tendency to want to stand out a bit, isn't there? At times. Can you think of a situation where you wanted to buck against tradition, kind of go your own way, and stand out like that? Thank you for that perfect example. It's a church family around here, isn't it? And we love it. And we love it. Can you think of a time like that when you buck against tradition and, and do your own thing and perhaps wanted to stand out? And, and perhaps there's ways that are appropriate to stand out, right? I think of my son Trevor uh, just auditioned for a play. And at an audition, you're trying to stand out, right? Hopefully in, a, in an appropriate way, you're... You're trying to do a good job, stand out, and, and get the part. Uh, but perhaps there's other times when, when standing out, going your own way, doesn't fit the situation. Because when you think about it, in, in trying to stand out, who are you drawing attention to? Yourself. And so perhaps there's situations, of course there are situations, there's times when we're better together with other people, when we're, when we're better fitting in, quite honestly, when we don't need to stand out. Perhaps there's times when we're better together, when we're better. The passage today in Scripture actually is going to encourage us that there are times when it's perhaps more appropriate, better, to conform to cultural practice, to, to, the, to the usual practices of worship in a church family, Rather than, than standing out and going one's own way, especially, why? Especially if, if doing so, fitting in with the cultural norm, fitting in with the usual practices of worship, is more respectful to God and others. If, if doing so gives proper respect to God. So we're in a series of messages we've called Better Together. We're studying through a book in the Bible called 1 Corinthians which is a letter from a church leader named Paul to a group of Christians a couple thousand years ago in a town called Corinth. And thus, this letter is a letter to the Corinthian Christians. And so grab your Bible if you don't have it out already. Love you to bring your Bibles with you or, or your Bible app on your favorite device and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in just a moment, I will read through uh, our chunk of scripture for today and we'll ask God to help us understand it. And we will need his help to understand it and to kind of wade through some things that are different from our culture, but look for what does God have to say to us that what, what in the passage today changes and, and what doesn't change? What does God have to say to us that stands the test of time? So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. God, I pray that you would help me to get out of the way for us to keep our fingers in the text, for us to look to you, and that by your spirit, you would help us to reflect on your word and understand uh, what you have for us today. So we thank you for an opportunity to be together as a church family, to study your word, to look to you. Would our lives be changed as a result? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 2. I'm going to read through the, uh, the passage. You can just follow along with me there in your Bible, and then we'll take a closer look. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. 
But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is, why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Everybody got it? <laughs> yeah, well, I got news for you. In the next 30 minutes isn't going to help a lot. <laughs> no, I mean, we're, we're going to do a little work, but, uh, but there's a lot of work here in, in a way. But, but as I said before I prayed... We want to ask God, what is unique to the culture of the situation that he wrote to, and therefore not something that we need to worry about today? And what does God's word have for us that is, stands the test of time? What are the principles in here that do impact the way we live and serve our great God? Well, first let me tell you, in this letter, um, in this letter that Paul is writing, we, this is, we've come to kind of a transition and uh, we've, he's been writing a lot in recent chapters about how Christians should interact with the world, how as a follower of Jesus we should interact with things out in the culture, people that are far from Jesus and not following him. And now there's this transition in the letter, and we enter into a, a section of the letter, a few chapters now and ahead, where the emphasis is more on how we as followers of Jesus exercise our rights and freedom within the church family even within the experience of gathered worship. He has uh, much to teach the Corinthians because Paul, has this leader, is hearing. He started this church. He loves these people. But he's hearing back about some of their practices and some of their confusion and some of their questions. And so he's writing these letters to them to set them straight, to correct them, to keep them on track. And so this section seems to be emphasizing um, how we as followers of Jesus exercise our freedom in Christ within the church, within the gathered worship gathering. Um, and so you'll see in coming chapters the importance of these things, like, like orderly worship. Um, what's this deal with head coverings? That's our passage today. Uh, there's a passage about the Lord's Supper. 
There's a passage about spiritual gifts and, and some specifics about prophecy and the speaking of tongues and, and how these are to be done in order and, and for the glory of God and what is good for God's people in gathered worship. And so that's the transition we are at in the letter. So in our passage today, verses 2 and 16 kind of frame what he's, what he's talking about a little bit. Verse 2 says, now I commend you. So he has this He has this encouragement, this brief encouragement. I commend you because you remember who I am. You remember me, your leader, the Apostle Paul, and you are maintaining the traditions, the things that I taught you. You're you're remembering those. That's good. I commend you. Thank you. And then at the end of the passage, verse 16 says, if anybody is inclined to be contentious, hey, we have no such practice. That's not how we do things, nor do the churches of God. So there's a sense here in this this, uh, passage of Scripture that Paul is, is asking them to conform to the ways that the universal church worships. In other words, the ways that all Christians, all followers of Jesus everywhere, should show respect for God and should indicate their worship for him. And so let's ask ourselves these questions. Again, there's going to be a lot in the passage that we don't relate to, that are tied cultural uh, expectations to that time and place. But what can we ask ourselves to learn this morning? What if we ask ourselves this question? How can we please God in worship? What if we consider the way that we worship together and we want to make sure that it's all about Jesus, not drawing attention to ourselves, right? That there's a time and place, perhaps an appropriate way we draw attention to ourselves in certain situations, but as we gather for worship, we want to consider how we worship together and we want to make sure that it's all about Jesus not a drawing attention to ourselves. Verse three. But I want you to understand. So he says, now I commend you in verse two. And then in verse three, it starts with what? But I commend you. There's some things you're doing. There's some things you're remembering. There's some ways that you're following Jesus. But I want you to understand, Paul writes, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, if you've been around the church, you've had an opportunity to study passages like these. If you haven't been around the church, then I invite you to stick with me. Okay? There's lots in this passage that we need to think through and understand before we jump to conclusions, right? There's lots in this passage. um, Before you write off this passage as old school, before we consider it oppressive, Perhaps before we're, we're angry about our, our modern sensibilities tell us that, to, that our modern sensibilities kind of rub against things that that says, doesn't it? If we're not careful. So we need to be careful not to jump to conclusions based on those modern quote-unquote sensibilities. There are cultural differences that we need to consider in this passage, but there are also principles that absolutely still apply. Things that God would have us to learn from his word this morning. And, 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 if, and in just in case you're a female and you feel a little attacked by this passage, hey, let's note, this passage is actually very balanced in, in, in some comments toward men and women. So what are the principles at work here? What's the issue? Well, the issue is this deal with head coverings, right? Is it supposed to be on? Is it supposed to be off? If I'm a man, is it supposed to be on? Is it, if I'm a woman, is it supposed to be on? Is it supposed to be off? What's going on? Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. 
And verse 3 tells us who his head is. Who's his head? Christ. So every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors Christ. What was happening in Corinth was that some of these men were wearing head coverings or growing their hair out long, and, it may, and it's probably not so much that that in itself is wrong. We could make a case from Scripture that they have freedom in Christ to wear or not wear, to grow their hair or not grow their hair. But what the issue is, is in their situation, in their context, in their city, the men pulling up their shawl over their head or growing their hair long was too similar to the anti-Christian, non-God-believing people that were worshiping idols. And so these Christians who know the true God are now adopting practices that put them in too close a company with pagan people. Does that make sense? Verse 5, and what's the deal with the women? But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, who is who? The husband. We'll, get, we'll explain here some more as we go. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. The deal here is that some women were skipping the usual practice of wearing their hair up. Notice how I wear my hair up today. Some women were skipping this usual cultural expectation, this cultural practice of wearing their hair up or wearing a head covering during worship. In trying to express this newfound freedom that they had in Christ, in moving away from religion to please God, in recognizing that they had been set free in Christ, they were um, trying to express this freedom by, by going against the cultural expectations of the worship gathering at that time and thinking, you know what? I can worship with my hair let down. And the problem isn't so much the hair. It was that in that place and at that time, hair down in worship said, I am sexually available. Oops. Not sure that was what they were trying to express. It, hair down... Uh, head uncovered would say, I'm available. I'm unmarried. I'm married, but I'm acting unmarried. I'm drawing attention to myself in an inappropriate way. So we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this some more. But let's look again at this aspect of verse 5, because I think we, we, we see certain things, and they catch our attention, and they go against our modern sensibilities, and they rub us the wrong way, and we miss the cool stuff. Okay, so, get, so, so check this out. Look at the beginning of verse five. But every wife who prays or prophesies, stop. That's groundbreaking for women. This is not anti-women. This is Paul being very pro-women as followers of Jesus and full participants in congregational worship of the God, of our great God. You see that? It says every woman who prays or prophesies, which means there's an expectation that the men and the women have the opportunity to participate in the worship gathering. At that time, in the Jewish synagogue, women were not considered full members, full participants in the worship gathering. But in the Christian church, in the early Christian church, here you have Paul, this apostle, saying that in the Christian church, women are absolutely full participants in worship. That was unheard of. Anybody excited about that? Okay. Okay. 
The Bible teaches full equality of the genders and interdependence of the genders, dependence on one another. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible's not misogynistic. The Bible's not old school. The Bible's not anti your modern sensibilities. The Bible teaches full equality and interdependence. Look at verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. As woman was made from the man, so man is now born of woman. That's in, pretty interdependent, wouldn't you say? And all things are from God. This teaching of the Bible of, of equality of the genders is, is scandalous and unheard of for the time of the Corinthians. It was a challenge to a society that was very much hierarchical top-down, men above women. And I won't just say men above women. I'll say this, the, the teachings of Scripture were very uh, countercultural, scandalous, unheard of in challenging this hierarchical society that considered women to be less than. And so because of this newfound freedom in Christ, because of this equality and interdependence of the genders, it had led to these freedoms in worship, to, to, to feeling we could worship in certain ways and, and be free from, from religious rules and, and certain things that had been set aside. But, but embracing these freedoms can't cause us to overlook other biblical teaching. Okay, let me say that again and, and, and just make sure to track with me because I think that's critical to how we're trying to understand this passage. Embracing our freedoms in Christ can't cause us to overlook other biblical teaching. We still want to apply our lives, live our lives, express our worship in accordance with the full counsel of Scripture, right? Not just looking to one or two particular verses that we like or don't like, but we want to express our worship for God according to the whole counsel of Scripture. And so the Corinthians, in the name of freedom, were neglecting these God-given principles for how worship is orderly and how the genders relate. The Corinthians, in the name of this newfound freedom, were neglecting other God-taught, God-expected things for how we express our respect and honor and love for him. Okay? So now let's look at verse 3 again. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Does this passage mean that men are to be domineering? No. Does this passage mean that women are somehow inferior? No. Different. Different. Uniquely, uniquely made. Both, both unique and made in the image of God. Different. Not one's better than the other. Not one can be heard of more than the other. Not, not any of that. Equal in God's image. God, in Genesis, made humans in his image. Male and female, he created them in his image. Equally loved by God. Men, women. Equally uh, able to receive the gift of salvation. Equal value in the sight of God, each made uniquely. Each, I always think this is fascinating. This comes up in premarital counseling and in marital counseling. God made man in his image. 
unique. God made women in his image. Well, if they're both in his image, you know what the best representation of the full image of God is? Man and woman together, united in marriage, put together in all their uniqueness and all their giftedness and all all that they bring to the table, the best reflection of the full image of God is man and woman together, united in marriage. And so we want to approach this passage and especially this phrase that the head of a wife is her husband with this understanding of what God means by that and what he doesn't. Verse 3 also says that the head of Christ is who? We believe in a Trinitarian God. Something I can't explain, but we all just go with it. We believe there is one God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is God, is God the Father God? Is God the Son God? Is the Holy Spirit God? Are they equally God? Are they, okay, one God, equal, and yet, verse 3 says, the head of Christ is God. So, so when it says the head of a woman is the husband, this can't be a diss. This can't be like a rejection. This can't be denigrating women somehow. This can't somehow threaten your equality, ladies, because, it's applied, because the same idea is applied to Christ. The Trinity is equal in essence and divinity, and they are in relationship with one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet we see in the Bible that each of the, of the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, have these different roles and functions, even submitting to the other. Father submitting to Son. Son sending out the Spirit seems to have a an authority over, over the Spirit in that sense, because there are different roles. Jesus submits to the Father joyfully, willingly. He is equally God, and yet he, Jesus embraces this different function, this unique role that God has for him. Jesus' willingness, Jesus' willingness to submit to the will of the Father is not weakness. It's a sign of strength. And humility. And so that's, that's the model that God gives for marriage. That, women are to, that wives are to submit to their husband. Not, out of, not, not as if submission is, is weakness. But it's a sign of strength and humility and expression of love. So we see the reason for a husband to be the head of a wife as rooted right in the Trinitarian order. And another place we see uh, this God-ordained order is in the order of creation. Look at verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Is Paul saying anything that hasn't been taught elsewhere in the Bible? No, he's he's just reminding us of what was taught in Genesis. Paul is simply reminding us of what we already know from the first book of the Bible, that when God created Adam, and then they couldn't find a suitable mate for Adam, there was no one that seemed to go with him, and so Eve was created, how? Out of Adam, 
So, so verses eight and nine, just recap what we already know from Genesis, that, that the first woman, Eve, was created out of Adam. Adam saw her and said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Man created first and female created out of the man. So there we have yet again, it was in the Trinitarian order, this idea of submission within equality. And here in the, or, in the creation order, we have... Um, a reason for uh, uh, the submission in marriage. This commentator pastor wrote this, when Christians display the creational order in worship and in marriage, God is pleased. Listen to this. Gender distinctions are not a curse to be covered, but a blessing to be celebrated. So this passage has all kinds of, of cultural expectations that we don't relate to. Headwear, not headwear, long hair, shaved heads, you know, stuff that was going on that was unique to the Corinthians that we don't uh, necessarily relate to because those are not the cultural expectations of our time and what is appropriate for gathering together in worship. But what Paul is essentially saying then in this passage is this, men, don't dishonor God by adopting ways of dressing that, that, are, that are for idolatry, and I don't know whether we'll come up with an example that applies to us or not, but the principle of the passage was, hey, men, don't adopt ways of dressing or ways of appearing that is what the pagans do, that is what those that are anti-God do. And women, this passage is saying, don't dishonor God and your husband by adopting a, a dress code that calls your marital status into question. Ladies, Paul's writing to the Corinthian women, wives. Don't dishonor your husband by dressing or appearing like you're available, like you're unmarried. And so again, these, w w there are things that are bound in culture. And then there's what we can ask ourselves in 2020 of what this passage might want us to wrestle with. And I think it's that it wants us to wrestle with this. How can we please God in the way we gather together for worship? How can we make sure that when we gather together to worship our great God, that we're drawing attention to him and not inappropriately trying to stand out and draw attention to ourselves? That's something good to consider, isn't it? The way we approach the worship gathering, the way we approach the worship of our great God, the way we come into this room and at 10.15, shift our posture from self or others to lifting up our great God. How can we please God in worship? And you could take passages like this, and this pendulum could swing too far to one way or the other. So I want to encourage us to, not, to, to be careful about this and not swing the pendulum too far one way or the other. If we swing the pendulum too far toward legalism, then we would read a passage like this and we would be trying to figure out whether we should have something on our head or not in worship, right? And, and I don't want to make too much light because there are followers of Jesus that, that are still um, including these scriptural commands out of their conviction that it, that it applies today. So, 
but, but the point is, if we're not careful, legalism will have us follow everything that is said down to what was not ever intended. Follow a rule beyond what God intended. There are aspects of this passage that I believe are tied to Corinth 2,000 years ago and not to us. Does that make sense? Okay. But if we swing the pendulum too far the other way, liberally applying our freedom in Christ, if we go too far the other way that we apply our freedom so liberally, so wildly, that we go against other biblical standards, now we've gone too far, right? So, so the Corinthian women said, I'm free in Christ, so I want to worship in a different way, so I'm letting my hair down. Oops, I'm communicating that I'm available. We don't want to do that either. We don't want to swing the pendulum so far that we go against other biblical teaching. So as always, when we study the Bible, we want to get to the principle. We want to get to the, the, the principle for all time. We want to know what God has to say to us today. And, and, and the way that this passage taught what was crucial was appealing to Trinitarian order. What we see in the Godhead himself, that there is equality and yet submission in the creation order, equality, and yet unique different roles and functions within gender roles and within marriage. And so that's, that's how the passage today uh, showed us what matters for all time, is that God has a desired order, a desired um, way that, that in gender interaction should happen and that marriage should work. And so as we, wind, as we finish up today, the passage is talking about headwear and hair length in worship. And we've already talked about then, so we, we can ask ourselves the question, how do we honor God in worship? How do we make sure he's the focus and not us? So far, so good? But I also think this passage is, is too good an opportunity to pass up. So I want to take just a couple more minutes on this point that I've mentioned a little bit already. This passage is too good of an opportunity not to think of just a little bit more about the fact that we have an opportunity because of this passage to see that equality and submission can go together. Right? We rub, we, sometimes the idea of submission rubs us the wrong way. We're Americans, we can do our own thing, don't tell me, no one tell me what to do. No one be in charge of me. Our modern sensibilities, there's very much of, uh, there's very many good things that have come from the feminism movement. But is it possible that feminist kind of movement has gone too far and taken away God-ordained principles for how the genders interact and how marriage best functions? We have an opportunity in this passage to see that equality and submission can go together. Just like we see in the Godhead himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Just like we see that within the relationship of our God, there is submission. Let's revel in the fact that God has good purposes for submission within our equal human relationship of marriage. Let's embrace that what he might have. Instead of doing our own thing, instead of living out marriage the way the culture would prefer, instead of trying to stand out in an inappropriate way, what if we see that God has good purposes 
for the uniqueness of men, the uniqueness of women, not the inequality, equal and yet different and, and equal and, and exciting good purposes for why wives submit to husbands. When the Bible says that the head of a wife is her husband, and in Ephesians 5, when Ephesians 5 says things more directly like wives submit to your husband, there's some homework for you, Ephesians 5, jot it down, read it later, excellent, excellent, and don't be offended, and watch how it is rooted in the example of how Jesus loves the church. So go jot that down and check out Ephesians 5 later. But listen, when the Bible says things like in our passage today that the head of a wife is her husband, and in Ephesians 5 it says things like wives submit to your husbands, why is that not a demeaning thing? Why is that not about superiority and inferiority? Because Jesus is our example. Because Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's rescue plan. God set about to rescue us from sin and death. And he said, you know what I need to have make this happen? I need you, Jesus, to go live the life that they cannot live and die the death they deserve so I can raise you again to new life and they can know you and be, know me and be forgiven and be made right with God and receive life forever. And so God set about that rescue plan, and what he needed to have that happen, to have that work, was he needed Jesus to submit to his direction. And Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's rescue plan, and he secured our salvation. Jesus didn't do his own thing. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he did not like the idea of what was coming in a few hours. Father, take this cup from me. But he set himself aside. He didn't do his own thing. He didn't try to stand out in an inappropriate way. He submitted himself to the Father and went to the cross. The submission of Jesus Christ is an expression of love. Ladies, wives, that's what God calls you to, is an expression of love in submitting to the head but I know it still sounds hard sometimes because <laughs> you're not just submitting to Jesus, are you? You're submitting to imperfect sinner men. But what are you submitting to? In, in the plan of God, in the purposes of God, in the unique roles of God, in the functions that God has in mind for marriage, what, are, what, are, what is God calling you wives to submit to? A husband that should darn well know that a smart leader gets good smart counsel from, from those around them, right? That a smart leader, that a smart head, that a head who is submitted to Jesus and asking God by his grace to help lead the family is going to do so in a way that is best for the family, and if the man, follower of Jesus' husband, is submitted to Christ and, and committed to, by the grace of God, doing the best for the family, the best for the wife, the best for the kids, the best for friends, then, then is that someone we can submit to? And even better than that, even better than that is what Ephesians 5 calls men to. God's call to husband is to love his wife 
as Christ loves the church. And we crumple under the weight of that. I mean, that is a high call. This isn't like, oh, hey, ladies, you got to submit, and it's really hard, and then I'm going to give this easy job to the guys. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church because Jesus is our ultimate example. How does Jesus love the church? He loved the church by giving himself up for the church, even to the point of death, to rescue his bride, to rescue the people of God. And if that is what Christ-like love looks like, if that is what the love that God is calling husbands to, what a gift of grace it is from our great God that Jesus died for us. So instead of living and worshiping in a way that draws attention to ourselves, let's ask God to help us use our lives to point to him to give him all the glory. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. We thank you for a chance to study your word, even difficult passages like this that are confusing and, and um, have cultural expectations and things that we don't relate to. God, would you help us to still read our word daily? Would you help us to look to you by studying your word? Would you help us to listen to your spirit that lives within us, would you teach us to listen to your spirit, to reflect on the scripture so that we, so that you can help us to understand what you have for us. And so God, today as we think about what it looks like to worship together, what it looks like to give you all the honor and glory, would you help us to take ourselves out of the way? Would you help us not to approach life and worship in a way that inappropriately brings attention to ourselves. But God, would we recognize that we are better together, that we are better when our lives and our worship points to you and gives you all the glory. Help us to do that this morning, this week, and always. In Jesus' name, amen.